stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Neil Stevenson, is a touchstone writer and thinker in the world of science fiction. His 1992 breakthrough novel, Snow Crash, was named by Time Magazine as one of the top 100 all-time best English language novels. Since then, Stevenson has tackled many topics with his trademark one-two punch of scientific rigor and inventive storytelling. Code-breaking and world wars in Cryptonomicon, historical fiction and the origins of science with the Baroque cycle, philosophy and mathematics in Anathem, and high-stakes global adventure and video game economics in ReamD. His unique perspective on the intersections of science, technology, and sociology have also drawn the attention of people outside the world of books. He was hired by Jeff Bezos's space company, Blue Origin, that launched a rocket into space this month. He holds the title of Chief Futurist at Magic Leap, a company developing a virtual reality technology framework, and he is involved with the Tall Tower Project at Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination. Neil Stevenson is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his latest book, Seven Eves, which Publishers Weekly in their starred review describes as such. Stevenson's remarkable novel is deceptively complex, a disaster story, and transhumanism tale that serves as the delivery mechanism for a series of technical and sociological visions. Booklist adds, Seven Eves contains the most realistic and relatable cast of characters in a scatological narrative history. Welcome to Between the Covers, Neil Stevenson. Thanks for inviting me. So Seven Eves starts with the line, the moon blew up without warning and for no apparent reason. And it isn't clear to the scientists of the world why the moon has blown up, but it is soon clear there's a scientific consensus of what this means for the world. So can you tell our listeners what we learn pretty quickly in Seven Eves about what humanity faces? Yeah, at the beginning, it's just a kind of a scientific wonder. Uh, but um, uh, after a few days, two pieces of the former moon bang into each other at random, and one of them breaks in half, and there's... Uh, the, the, the scientists begin thinking about what that implies and do some calculating, and they figure out that um, uh, in, a, in a kind of known, predictable span of time, like something like, uh, like two years, um, this process is going to go exponential, and the moon's fragments are going to grind each other up into kind of a sea of, of, of gravel, in space, and some of that is going to come down into the Earth's atmosphere and render uh, render it impossible to live on the Earth. And impossible to live on the Earth for 
for 5,000 years. For a long time. Tell us whether you drew this scenario mostly out of your imagination or whether you did ultimately consult your own science background or scientists to figure out whether uh, that would actually occur. Well, the basic scenario is mostly uh, my imagination. that's kind of, uh, to, to, to tell you the truth, it's the least scientifically founded, most speculative part of the, the whole thing. There is actually some concern uh, about space junk, about uh, debris and spent uh, boosters and so on that, that human activity has left in orbit around the Earth uh, that, uh, that could create a, a similar problem on a much, much smaller scale uh, by by slamming into each other in orbit and fragmenting into you know so many pieces of, of junk that it would be hazardous to launch spacecraft into orbit. So that's where I got the idea from. But I've blown it up, uh, you know, much to a much larger degree in this book, just so I could have an excuse for people to build a space ark. Well, let's talk about the space ark. Humanity has two years to figure out a solution before. Mm-hmm. The Earth is going to be inhospitable, and perhaps everybody uh, on it no longer alive. Um, how does how do the world's communities come up with a way to uh, both maintain order and also maintain hope? Well, the maintaining order part, I don't put a whole lot of attention to in in this book, just because uh, uh, you know my reading of the way people behave under under stress and under crisis is. Is is that uh, maintaining order isn't as much of an issue as uh, a lot of you know makers of disaster movies would would have you believe. Uh, I, I think history shows that for the most part, when there's a big disaster, um, or you know, or a big uh, you know a war or an earthquake or something like that that forces people to work together, they tend to do it. Uh, it tends to be when people's best natures come out, um, but. One of the reasons that they do it is that they're given a task to work on, and that task is contributing one way or the other to the building of this ark, this this uh, the, the so-called cloud ark. Instead of being one big ship, it's a swarm of smaller ships, um, and so that's kind of the the early part of the book is telling the story of of that and how the the people of Earth sort of work together to to get that going. And unlike Noah's Ark, this is mostly a way to uh, figure out a way to save some portion of humanity in space, but also flora and fauna, but not in in live form. Yeah, because of you know the the big thing kind of scientifically that's changed, you know, since I was a kid reading books about space arcs, uh, is that we have ways to digitally store genetic information now, and so. Um, you know, clearly we're not going to be taking blue whales and, you know, sequoias into space and keeping them alive for 5,000 years. But, but it's easy to put, it, put the, the, the bits on a thumb drive and, and, and preserve that. Um, so, so therefore, the, the emphasis is on, you know, preserving a sample of, of human diversity and, and getting, getting humans up there um, and and putting them in a position where they can hopefully uh, reproduce and and keep the the species going. One of the things that I found really refreshing about Seven Eves in this scenario is to see both a scientific consensus around what's going to happen to the planet, 
but also um, people accepting the scientific consensus for the most part and and working together towards it is particularly in contrast to what we're seeing with climate change where we we have you know mostly a a scientific consensus but that's not necessarily translating in in a in a coming together yeah that was very much on my mind when i was kind of laying out this scenario um you know if you're going to write a a space arc book you've you've got to have a, a pretty finely calibrated end of the world scenario uh, it's got to be something that happens uh, slowly enough that um, there's time to build an ark, uh, but not so slowly that we wouldn't just go out and fix the problem. Uh, and uh, the, But the, the other thing is that it has to be obvious. It has to be something that people cannot sit around and argue about, um, like, like global climate change. And, and, and that was one of the reasons that I favored this idea of of the moon blowing up is that it was just so shocking and obvious that uh, I, I wouldn't have to, to kind of write a whole section of the book where people argued about what was happening. Well, you mentioned just earlier about a lot of the portrayals of catastrophe in the media, which you think are, are ultimately different than the way humans actually respond to catastrophe. Do you, do you think there's a difference between the way humans tend to respond to slow catastrophes versus sudden ones. We Obviously, with earthquakes and hurricanes and such, it does seem like people rally and come together and um, help people they don't know. Mm-hmm. But with climate change, for instance, which ends up seeming abstract because we, don't, we can't connect it maybe even to uh, something intangible in our lifetimes or we could doubt what's happening in our lifetimes, perhaps, uh, that maybe we're less well-equipped to... Yeah. to Figure that out. Yeah, people respond to weather, but they don't respond to, to climate because weather is visible with your own eyes, and you you feel its effects, and it happens over you know a, a span of hours or days. Uh, but 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 climate, you you know your your brain gets involved and starts uh, uh, you know fouling things up by by you know uh, arguing about about whether it's really happening or not. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to author Neil Stevenson about his latest novel, Seven Eves. Um, one of the main characters and one of my favorite characters is Doc Dubois, who is a celebrity scientist um, who seems to be loosely based on Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, what are your thoughts on celebrity scientists in, in the real world uh, and, and science popularizers? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the good ones... Uh, are um, I, I think really foundational to a uh, a well-functioning uh, republic in a way. I mean, you've you've got to have these people who can serve as a bridge, you know, who have legit scientific credentials, uh, but who can also go on the Today Show, you know. So um, you've you've got to be able to, uh, you know, the, those those people are are really important to have around, and 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 we kind of rely on them. Uh, to to perform that role, and um, so the the first uh, question that came into my mind, you know, when I started coming up with this scenario, well, was well, if if this actually happened, who would we look to to explain it? You know, who would be the leaders? And I think that uh, that those few people who can bridge between hard science. Uh, and and the popular imagination would would suddenly become even more important than they are now. 
when I think about science popularizers and I think about Neil deGrasse Tyson and back to Carl Sagan, it seems like they're they're speaking to a very, at least in my mind, it seems like they're speaking to a very different world. And I wonder if you share that idea that when Carl Sagan was big in the 80s and talking about the ways in which a manned mission to Mars could really elevate humanity, it felt like we were still in sort of the, the wave of, of technological optimism mm-hmm. in a way. And I don't know if we had more scientific literacy then as a population, but I wonder compared to what Neil deGrasse Tyson's having to do with yeah. a similar enterprise, but maybe a totally different audience. Yeah, I, 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 I think it boils down to the fragmentation of, of where we get our information, right? So uh, back then in the Carl Sagan era, we were still, we were coming out of it, but we were still kind of in the era of, you know, you sit down at the end of every day and watch the, uh, the nightly news on one of three television networks and and the content that is up there is uh you know has been kind of curated and vetted by serious people uh and and now you can get your your news and your ideas from anywhere you want to further this uh question of optimism you're you're one of the more notable uh, writers in science fiction who i think puts forth a certain optimism in your in your books, the optimism around the capability of technology and human ingenuity. And um, even though in this book, the vast majority of people very quickly at the beginning are no longer alive, um, it still feels like it has um, a certain bent towards optimism and a, and a do-it-yourself, can-do sort of philosophy. Why do you think... Um, today, mostly, almost exclusively, it seems like the things that we see in front of us are dystopian and apocalyptic. Well, I think that, um, you, you, first of all, you have to make a distinction between what we see in, in, um, in books versus so screen media. <clears throat> so um, books, uh, science fiction books present a, a really wide diversity of, uh, of, of visions of the future. Um, and um, the uh, but the the media that we see in in movies, television, video games, and so on uh, is very strongly skewed towards uh, dystopian visions. Um, and I, you know, I've been thinking about that for a long time about why that is. I I think there's a certain air that uh, or a certain idea that that's cool. That um, so, Blade Runner, for example, was incredibly formative in the the lives of a lot of film directors, they still look to that as kind of their benchmark for what looks like a cool future. I also think that just in purely economic terms, um, it is a lot easier and cheaper to create a dystopian vision than a utopian one. Um, So, uh, and that started with, say, I think it really started with Planet of the Apes, where at the end of the movie, you see the Statue of Liberty falling over in the sand. Um, that is a really cheap special effect, right? But it says a lot. It's super powerful. It really had a, a big punch. And you see the descendants of that all over the movies today, where people will just take, you know, a, a, a cityscape or a building that we know and kind of throw some dirt on it and knock out some windows, and suddenly you've got a, you know, a, a vision of a dystopia. Um, so, whereas, for example, when uh, 
James Cameron did Avatar and had to create a completely new original world, um, that was unbelievably expensive because everything had to be designed from, from scratch. Um, so I actually think there's a pretty strong economic imperative that's pushing film directors and makers of video games and so on to, to just go for the easy, cheap, dystopian uh, vision. And also, I know you, you speak a lot about how you don't feel like we're doing big things today like we did in the first half of the century. When we start the century with, with no planes and mid-century we're on the moon, Yeah, um, I would imagine just the general populace isn't seeing a lot of these bold acts the way we used to see them. And, and the sense of dystopia, that, along with economic decline, right. the, the limiting horizon of possibilities, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think that um, there's a, uh, you know, there, there's a reason why um, both the United States and the Soviet Union put so much money into the space program and other kind of big achievements. Uh, uh, and it wasn't just that. It went back at least as far as the, the 30s. Um, the fascist powers and the communist powers and the capitalists were all trying to build impressive stuff to kind of blow people's minds and create the idea of, of progress. And, um, and they were trying to make statements about their political systems. But uh, there's an, another kind of message that's carried by that, which is uh, a, a general belief that uh, that technology's on an upward march and we're making awesome things and you know the the future is is radiant. Uh, so regardless of what you think about um, you know those propaganda statements, um, you know they did lead to a general belief on the the, the part of many people um, that uh, we were kind of on a, a, a a firmly established upward trend uh, that was going to keep going, you know, to to the moon and Mars and beyond. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to author Neil Stevenson about his latest novel, Seven Eves. So, Neil, let's hear a little bit of the prose from from Seven Eves. Sure. This is just a brief sample from very early in the book, after the moon has just blown up. Um, Rufus McQuarrie saw it all happen above the Black Ridge line of the Brooks Range in northern Alaska. Rufus operated a mine there. On clear nights, he would drive his pickup truck to the top of a mountain that he and his men had spent the day hollowing out. He would take his telescope, a 12-inch Cassegrain, out of the back of the truck and set it up on the summit and look at the stars. When he got ridiculously cold, he would retreat into the cab of his truck. He kept the engine running and hold his hands over the heater vents until his fingers regained feeling. Then, as the rest of him warmed up, he would put those fingers to work, communicating with friends, family, and strangers all over the world. And off it. After the moon blew up and he convinced himself that what he was seeing was real, he fired up an app that showed the positions of various natural and man-made celestial bodies. He checked the position of the International Space Station. It happened to be swinging across the sky 260 miles above and 2,000 miles south of him. He pulled a contraption onto his knee. He had made it in his little machine shop. It consisted of a telegraph key that looked to be about 150 years old, mounted on a contoured plastic block that strapped to his knee with hook and loop. He began to rattle off dots and dashes, 
A whip antenna was mounted to the bumper of his pickup truck, reaching for the stars. 260 miles above and 2,000 miles south of him, the dots and dashes came out of a pair of cheap speakers zip-tied to a conduit in a crowded, can-shaped module that made up part of the International Space Station. You've been listening to Neil Stevenson read from Seven Eves. Uh, Neil, can you tell us about the Hieroglyph Project, um, what a hieroglyph is, and what the Hieroglyph Project's aim is? Yeah, this was a project that came out of a sort of unplanned encounter with Michael Crow, who's the president of Arizona State University, uh, a couple of years ago at a conference. And um, we were, I was talking about what you and I were just discussing a minute ago. And he... um, he sort of uh, uh, issued a challenge, uh, saying that um, the uh, he felt that the the engineers of the world and the scientists and the big institutions were ready to go, ready to to go out and do ambitious things, but that uh, the science fiction writers had been slacking off, writing kind of gloomy, <laughs> navel gazing, dystopian junk, and that we needed to get off our butts and create some awesome new visions that people would want to to realize. Um, and so, uh, and that was, you know, issued um, in a, a, a friendly spirit, but it, it was a serious challenge. So out of that came this project. Uh, we uh, created a, a new entity at uh, Arizona State called the Center for Science and the Imagination, and we collaborated with um, HarperCollins on, on making this anthology of science fiction stories that were intended to depict kind of more optimistic or constructive visions of, of the future. Uh, but but we, we didn't want to go back and have them be sort of naive, kind of 50s and 60s era stuff either, because you, you can't go back. Uh, so my contribution was a story about constructing uh, an extremely tall tower in uh, out in the desert just building it out of steel and um, reaching um, all the way up into what most people would consider outer space. And and the purpose of the tower for launching aircraft with far less fuel? The, the, the economic purpose of the tower is a little bit of a, if you build it, they will come kind of, of thing. The, uh, the, the idea is that there's no one economic application of it that could possibly make enough money to pay for building it. And so uh, the, the, the guy who funds it, who's just an individual with a lot of money, um, has some initial ideas on you know, launching rockets from the top and, um, and that sort of thing. But um, as, as it goes up, it attracts other people who have other ideas like building a high-altitude airport and using it for... Um, so of recreational purposes and making it into a tourist destination. And the word hieroglyph, is, is that point to this notion of creating a vision but not necessarily knowing its end point usage? That came out of a, a, a conversation uh, in, in which we were, we were talking about um, the, uh, the, the role that certain uh, iconic ideas or images played in classic science fiction. So one would be, for example, the, the Heinlein-style rocket ship that, that descends on its pillar of fire and lands on its fins. 
Um, and, uh, uh, you know, another one might be, um, say, the uh, three laws of robotics or what have you. But there's sort of very clear images or ideas that get fixed in people's memories and, uh, and then kind of motivate them uh, to, to, to try to realize those, those things. And do you feel like in, in your actual books that science fiction um, is part of a vanguard around actual science ideas? It feels to me like when, at, at the very minimum, that your books are, are trying to be demonstrative around the ways in which humans can do long-term thinking. And I, I think of the 10,000-year-old clock and anathem, and then obviously this 5,000-year contingency plan for, for humans in seven eaves. Well, um, I, I was sort of turning around a little bit and say that um, that's maybe the only way that science fiction can actually be of, of direct utility is that uh, um, occasionally we hear from somebody who's, who's become an entrepreneur or a scientist or an engineer that um, that they got inspired by a work of science fiction and uh, and have been working toward that. And in, in some cases, you hear of a whole organization uh, that um, is kind of using a science fictional vision as a template so that everybody in that organization understands what it is that they're collectively working toward. Um, kind of saves on a lot of unnecessary PowerPoint presentations if everybody has the same vision. So, um, uh, so the this was just a kind of well. First of all, it was an experiment, and uh, we don't know yet if it's actually going to be a successful experiment. But um, it, it's an experiment to to see what happens if you just sit down and consciously try to create those sorts of iconic. Uh, hieroglyphs, those iconic images uh, that that uh, might inspire people to work towards something. Well, in a lot of your books, Neil, you've had real historical characters. You've had Turing, you've had Leibniz. Um, and this book, it feels like you have some characters that resonate with contemporary figures. We have the Doc Dubois character and, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, but the President of the United States, Julia, also feels like she resonates with Hillary Clinton to me. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I was curious if you were looking for a contemporary um, conversation with the characters that you were creating in Seven Eves. No, I don't really like to, uh, to operate that way. Um, in a way, it's inconvenient uh, that, um, my, uh, that this book ended up getting written and, and coming out um, just at the time when Hillary Clinton is getting her uh, her presidential campaign underway, and you know, stands a decent chance of being the first female president because that that kind of coincidence does lead people to draw those those connections. Uh, so you know, I, I like to steer people away from that sort of thing. The uh, particularly given some of what happens later in the book. Well, one of the things that I think is crucial about having the Julia character, the president of the United States, in the book is it really complicates this problem-solving issue because it's bringing into, into the narrative the, the political mindset. And if everyone was just operating from a scientific mindset and not from a political mindset, um, things would be 
much simpler and it, the the narrative becomes complex but also the solution for how to save humanity becomes more complex when you introduce democracy or you introduce um these uh conflicting voices and you you talked earlier about the big projects that were done between the Soviet Union and in the United States and even with in fascist Europe and I had a guest on earlier uh for his book Benjamin Parzibach and he was talking about the role of dictators in in ancient Rome and that they didn't have a stigma but they were actually used or hired temporarily for crises or specific wars or specific catastrophes so you'd say you're fighting Italy you're going to have a dictator for this specific war or there's this crisis going on we need a dictator um what are your thoughts on democracy big projects and uh, this issue of how do we solve like large things while also dealing with people who have uh, things that are working at cross purposes yeah. due to political <clears throat> reasons. Yeah, no, that's actually a, a tension that's addressed in the book. Uh, there's people, you know, people kind of explicitly uh, argue about this uh, in in the book, and uh, it came up in the the tall tower thing too. Um, a situation, for example, where um, some some interesting proposals have been made on what we might do about climate change. You know, there's ideas for geoengineering. There's ideas for uh, trying to implement uh, carbon sequestration on a very large scale. And um, from a scientific point of view, it's not hard to argue that we should absolutely go out and do those things. Um, clearly, climate change is happening, and clearly it's going to be a, a huge disaster. Um, but uh, it then you you when you try to translate that into action, it seems like the only uh, governmental structure that would be capable of implementing those measures would would be one that has more power than we like our governments to have. And, you know, it, it is a, a dictator kind of situation, and um, you know, geoengineering in particular raises a lot of legitimate uh, concerns about. Um, well, you know, who gets to say how we're going to change, how we're going to engineer the, the, the climate? Um, so I don't have an answer. You know, it's a, it's a really awkward uh, uh, place that we've come to. You know, we, we need, uh, in some ways, we need that kind of decisive action. But, but experience has taught us that endowing a government with enough power to take that action is incredibly dangerous. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Neil Stevenson about his latest book, Seven Eves. To follow up on this idea of geoengineering, and it isn't a spoiler if you've read the back of the book to say that two thirds of the way in, we get we are confronted with the um, saying five thousand years later, and the book jumps forward five thousand years, and it also shifts its concerns from physics to biology. Um, to simplify things. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the questions that gets raised that different people in humanity um, have different answers to is, I think, even though this question isn't raised explicitly, is should humans manipulate nature? Are humans part of nature? Um, I, I have a sense of where you, you land on this, but I would love to hear more about um, human manipulation of nature in, in, in your mind and, and, and what you were thinking of when you were, when you were working on this part of the book. Well, the, what they're trying to do is re-terraform Earth. So Earth's been turned into a dead, 
inhospitable planet and they have a plan they've been developing for a very long time to um, you know, drop comets on the, the surface to flood it with water again and rebuild the atmosphere and create, uh, create a world that people can go back to and live on. Uh, and it's, it's clear that it's all going to be artificial, right? There's no question uh, of, of having anything about it be natural. Um, and so, um, so it, it, it's, it becomes a, a question of, you know, what specific kind of uh, uh, nature do we, do we want with nature in, in scare quotes? Uh, and, and how are we going to get there? So there's various debates that they have about that. But part of what I um, was thinking of when I wrote that was uh, this a couple of really interesting books by Charles Mann called 1491 and 1493, where he talks about what the Americas were like before Columbus showed up and how they changed after Columbus showed up. And you know, one of the difficult things I had to come to terms with reading those books was the idea that what I had taken to be nature when I was a kid, sort of idealized concept of nature, wasn't at all of natural. Everything about the Americas had been geoengineered over thousands of years by the, the, the pre-Columbian people who lived here. The Amazon rainforest uh, is a, 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 a human-made garden that just got overgrown when the, the humans were, were killed by imported European diseases. And the, uh, the prairies uh, of, of North America, where I grew up, um, were sort of artificially maintained by controlled fires uh, set by the, the Native Americans who lived in that part of the world. Um, and the herds of buffalo that I had been taught were sort of a natural wonder were, you know, sort of not quite domesticated, but uh, let's say that that they were uh, that they were there because uh, the the Indians wanted them to be there. Um, so the whole uh, I, idea of nature uh, and wilderness that I grew up with kind of got exploded by those books. And uh, that served as a little bit of context for me when I was writing the part of Seven Eves where, uh, where people are descending from, from space again to, to try to make the Earth into a functioning ecosystem. And you also touch on epigenetics and the um, manipulating of the genome and potentially uh, uh, speeding up evolution in certain ways. Um, Talk talk to us a little bit about what, if anything, in epigenetics today is what what spurred on some of those things in Seven Eves. Well, it's a it's kind of a nascent field, um, which science fiction writers love nascent uh, fields because it, uh, you know, you can you can get up to speed on it and and make some crazy extrapolations pretty fast um, uh, before the kind of disappointment and frustration of real science begins to to set in. So epigenetics just means that um, you can know everything there is to know about the DNA of uh, an organism, and still it it turns out that you you know very little about what that organism is going to look like and how it's going to respond um, to its environment because uh, there's other factors that aren't uh, readable from the, the DNA uh, that, um, 
that, that come into play. There's genes that can be suppressed uh, or expressed. They can be turned on and off uh, depending on circumstances. And, um, and so it's a much more complex uh, uh, phenomenon than, than you know, I was brought up to believe when we thought DNA was, was all there was. So uh, in, in the in 70s, I'm not, I'm not trying to fully do justice to the field of epigenetics, but I am trying to kind of show some awareness of it and, and play with some of the ideas that, that have come out of that. It's pretty common in science fiction and fantasy that that we see races that demonstrate certain character traits. So like, say, Lord of the Rings is a really obvious example, but Star Trek and plenty of other examples. But here in 70s, we have, uh, we have races that have evolved through human choice, essentially, mm -hmm. using some of these ideas of epigenetics. Are, do you feel like you are just continuing this tradition, or do you feel like you're in, in some ways, because of the human choice, interrogating this, this trope that's within science fiction and fantasy? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do a little of both, but I'm definitely interrogating that trope. I mean, uh, you're absolutely right that the, uh, essentially all of the big universes uh, in both fantasy and science fiction make use of multiple humanoid races. And, um, and conveniently, they all can kind of speak the same language. They can interbreed with each other. Um, and yet um, they, uh, they, main, they, have, they look different and they sort of maintain their own, their cultural uh, uh, qualities. So, you know, if you go into Middle Earth, you know, you know that the dwarf is going to be kind of grouchy and earthy and tough and so on and so forth. Um, so that is commonplace, and, and science fiction and fantasy fans love that stuff, uh, and I love it. Um, but um, I thought it would be interesting to kind of ask the question of... Uh, where those come from, you know, where do those races come from? It's, it's, for example, it's stated in Tolkien that the orcs, the goblins, were essentially elves that were kind of captured and tortured and, and, and altered into a, a different form by, um, uh, by Sauron. Um, and that's how they ended up as what they are. Um, and there's actually a whole, there's a, uh, a, 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 counter uh, to the, the Lord of the Rings, it was written by a Russian writer, which is the same story told from the point of view of an, an orc in Mordor. Wow. And is it any good? It's really cool, yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's an orc in Mordor, and, and he sees his civilization as a, uh, a, an industrial civilization that's essentially egalitarian, and that's overthrowing the old order of the, the elves, who are these uh, aristocratic, you know, patrician, class-bound wow. people. Um, but, uh, uh, but there are stories being told, you know, by, by the, the sort of uh, the, 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 the people who think elves are, are cool. So, so the orcs were always made out to be this oppressed, you know, or, or this, uh, the orcs were always made out to be um, these kind of one-dimensional evil vermin. Um, Which feels like one of the failings of Lord of the Rings in the sense that there is, it minimizes the moral question of killing, killing the orcs, yeah. even if, if you need to yeah. in, in those books. 
Yeah. So yeah, the um, I mean, there you see little snatches of conversation between goblins from time to time. It makes it clear they're sentient beings. They have fears, you know. Uh, they have aspirations, but it's okay to just massacre them. Um, and uh, um, and you can make similar uh, arguments about the the different races in Star Trek, or you know, name your fantasy or science fiction universe of of choice. So. Yeah, I th I thought it would be interesting to to create a universe that uses that trope, but um, in which the those races came about through intentional uh, decision making by specific people trying to achieve specific goals. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Neil Stevenson about his latest novel, Seven Eves. Oh, another uh, way in which you're well regarded, I think, is in your creation of female characters. Um, and there are a lot of very compelling female characters in Seven Eves. And one of the reasons, I think, is obvious, because women are going to be more important if we're trying to, to mm -hmm. deal with uh, the survival of the human race in space. Um, but there were other reasons why Doc Dubois considered women to be potentially superior uh, candidates to go up into the cloud arc. C could you talk about what some of those were? Yeah, there's... Uh... I mean, you know, NASA's been doing research on um, humans in space for a long time, and it appears that there are some some advantages that that women have. Uh, they're less susceptible to uh, radiation disease, for example, uh, because their their gonads are on the inside, to to put it bluntly. Um, and um, you know, anyone who who is on the average, you know, smaller. Um, is going to take up less space, need less food, less oxygen. And just culturally, for whatever reason, uh, um, it, it seems like um, they have an, an easier time of it living you know, together in confined uh, circumstances over a long period of time. Um, so, uh, so space is a, a realm in which... Um, um, not only is there a kind of e equality, but in which you know women may actually be better cut out to uh, to, to operate there. Well, it made me think of Richard Leakey and his choice of Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey to be out in the in the field. I think, if I remember correctly, he he actually thought that women would be uh, more resilient in hmm. in that scenario um, than I men. I hadn't heard that. Are yeah. there any? Um, big ideas that are happening today or that are being discussed today that you're particularly excited about? Big, like, science, technology-type um, ideas? Yeah, big with vision and yeah. and potentially ambition yeah. behind them. Well, I, you know, my kind of big-picture view of the arc of science and technology the last hundred years or so is that it was all kind of for a while, it was all sort of big toys. It was rockets, it was bombs, you know, it was airplanes. And um, and then suddenly, information technology kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. Nobody was predicting that. The um, science fiction writers I read when I was a kid were pretty good at predicting space stations and rockets, but <clears throat> they totally missed the Internet, the personal computer all of that stuff. So, um, so suddenly that happened, and uh, for decades now, all of the smart people have been doing that. 
uh, the, the ones who would have been building big stuff uh, in the 50s or 60s have been doing little startups in Silicon Valley and making apps or what have you, uh, which is fine. Um, but I think now we're beginning to see a trend back in the other direction where people like Elon Musk and others who you know, got their, their money um, by, uh, by doing uh, uh, sort of information technology startups are now turning back and saying, well, hey, what if we apply the mindset and the, the new tools that we have to, to the, the older kind of big iron problems of, uh, of transportation, energy, uh, going into space, what have you. Uh, and, and that is a kind of a fascinating trend uh, that I hope to see more of. And on, on that line, are there any books that you've been reading that you've been particularly uh, intrigued by? Well, none of the books I've been reading um, lately are uh, applicable to that thing I just said. Yeah. Um, strangely enough, I'm reading Bleak House, uh, Dickens's Bleak House, which... Um, uh, I don't know why I picked it up, but um, are you happy you picked it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's a fascinating book because it's it's basically a long series of character sketches, sort of loosely stitched together. Um, so, uh, and fortunately, he's really really good at it, and so um, he can describe just an encounter between two people, or he can he can he can. He can describe a, a person and how he's dressed and how he grooms himself and how he carries himself for pages at a time, and it's uh, it's very finely rendered, and and his character types are very recognizable as people we might bump into mm. here on the street any day. Um, but he's working in a in an era where you can get away with writing that way, um, you know, where people are happy to pick up just a gigantic book that's just a long series of those and and kind of read it at their leisure. There's a really good uh, adaptation with Gillian Anderson of Bleak House on BBC huh. for when you're done. Yeah, how long ago did that? Just a, year, a couple of years ago. Oh, really? And it's with uh, one of the the head of the Lannisters of Game of Thrones oh, okay. is in it, and huh. she's in it. And, it's, it's, and Carrie Mulligan, the actress. I'll check it's, it out. It's quite good. In reading about your in your writing habits, um, you've written some of your books with fountain pen. Mm -hmm. You use a treadmill desk, mm -hmm. and you also often will listen to music that is thematically uh, related. Um, I know with Anathem, you were listening to medieval music from a, a group that's here based in Portland. Yeah, yeah, Capella Romana. Uh, was there was Seven Eves written with any music um, particularly linked to it? And were you writing by pen, walking on a treadmill? Uh, well, the, there, there's no uh, common theme to all this. I tend to select a different set of tools and a different environment for every project. Um, it's sort of like a ritual I go through at the end of a book to sort of put aside the, all of the stuff I used to do the last one and kind of, you know, draw a line under it. And then, you know, I'll, I'll, find a new environment to, to start the next book, and I'll often use new new tools. So um, in the case of uh, Seven Eves, at the time I started the book, I already had a bunch of old documents um, that I had typed into a computer. So 
uh, I just went ahead and, and typed that in. I didn't use the fountain pen at all. Um, and I probably did a lot of the work on a treadmill. Uh, so uh, I, I didn't listen to a lot of uh, music during this one. And do you know what your next project's going to be? And if I do. You, can you tip no. your hand a little bit? No, I can't tip my hand. Not even one word? No. no. <laughs> well, it was great having you on Between the Covers today, Neil. It was fun being here. Thanks for a good discussion. We are talking today with author Neil Stevenson about his latest book, Seven Eves. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs>